0: Learn what better writing can do for your company at Grammarly.com. Grammarly, easier said, done.
1: You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through.
2: From the heart of
3: where innovation, money, and power collide, in Silicon Valley and beyond, this is Bloomberg Technology with Emily Chang.
0: I'm Ed Ludlow in New York, in for Emily Chang. This is Bloomberg Technology. Coming up in the next hour, Mark Zuckerberg warns Meta employees that a restructuring is on the horizon. The company is implementing a hiring freeze and will shrink teams to, quote, shift energy to other areas. We'll share more of the transcript obtained by Bloomberg. Plus, Apple gets downgraded following Bloomberg's report about iPhone production. And now we're learning of a high-profile executive leaving the company after a crude TikTok of him went viral and we've got to talk about the sell off across financial markets the S&P 500 drops to a 22 month low as the fed hawks circle big tech Takes a beating. I want to get straight to that Micron conversation and bring in Joanne Feeney, advisors, capital management partner and portfolio manager. Joanne, give me a second while I bring you some of the headlines. Micron seeing first quarter uh, fiscal first quarter adjusted revenue four to point five billion dollars. The estimate, of course, six billion dollars. But some of the commentary around the slowdown in demand and supply catching up is pretty astonishing. We're down much more considerably and after hours. We paired some of those losses. What's your read on what we're seeing from Micron?
1: Yeah, Ed, you know, pretty clear investors were really expecting a pretty weak guide from Micron, and that's what they got. But I think they were reassured that Micron is cutting CapEx by 30 percent. That's what uh, investors were looking for. It indicates that Micron is going to be real careful about adding to the problem. Clearly, we have a lot of supply from the memory makers and not enough demand, particularly because of the PC weakness that we're seeing. You know, they expect PC shipments to be down 15% related to memory. And so, you know, they're taking the right steps. But that just shows you memory is a very, very tricky place to invest. It's very
4: cyclical.
0: Well, let's try and throw this forward. We kind of look to Micron as if it's a crystal ball of what's to come in the global economy. What is the story when it comes to consumer electronics and which geographies are we most concerned about?
1: Well, you know, I think we're seeing a worldwide slowdown in some consumer um, demand, and, and that's Micron is going to pick that up. Uh, The real question is what's happening beyond the consumer. In particular, you know, we still have a lot of good data points that suggest auto and industrial remain strong. There are still shortages there. It's going to take probably another year to work those through. Uh, So you know, companies like Texas Instruments are well positioned for that. We continue to like them. We've held them for a long time for clients. The real question I think people are going to be looking for on the call as it continues is what's happening to cloud and data center. There's some concerns that firms seeing some consumer weakness might slow down their investments. But the long term fact in that world is that data usage uh, across all sorts of devices is going to continue to increase. We need wider pipes, we need more storage. So ultimately, you know, companies that play into that area, while they might suffer a pause, are going to be really well positioned for the long term for investors. And a lot of them have gotten cheap, whether it's a Sienna or a Broadcom.
0: Joanna? how did we get this so wrong i remember talking to you talking to ian king bloomberg news chip reporter about the vision for a a, a multi multi multi-quarter cycle that would just go on indefinitely this was going to happen coming out of the pandemic but that hasn't happened has it
1: yeah you know i think what we got wrong all of us was uh there was so much spending during the pandemic and that really came on the heels of a very strong period from like 2017 to 2019 really through 2020 up until the pandemic there were signs actually that inventory was starting to build before the pandemic hit and then that got disrupted by the demand during the pandemic for pcs and everything else and so now we're starting to see that side uh, really come off but don't Let's not misconstrue the implications. I think cloud and data center remain strong. There are concerns that firms might take a bit of a pause on when they do the installations. But that ultimately does still look like a very strong segment of the market. So you really have to pick and choose your semiconductor companies uh, to hold at this point.
0: I love talking to you, Joanne, because you've spent a lot of time looking at the semiconductor industry and you know, you're know you an expert, but you're also looking at the markets more broadly. right? I'm looking at you know, the NASDAQ 100 down significantly again. We're four days into the week. We're, going, we're heading towards another tough week in global equity markets with a focus on tech. What is top of mind for investors right now? Are we still not convinced by the direction of travel for the Fed? Are we con- concerned about global s- slowdown spurred by inflation? What is the story for you?
1: You know, there are some real solid risks out there for the global economy. I mean, the war in Ukraine is is not trivial. Uh, There could be bigger risks from that. Uh, The the energy situation is a concern. The amount that central banks around the world have to raise rates is a concern, and will that lead to recessions broadly? So the broad slowdown that I think folks are worried about uh, really has yet to resolve itself into sort of how big, how deep, and how long it will be. And investors, you know, are concerned about how much volatility they can stand. But if you have a long enough time horizon, you have to look back at history and recognize that the market sells off the most, right? tend to, be, tend to do that before recessions begin, and they right. tend to start to recover before we even know officially that we've had a recession. And so for a long enough term investor, I mean a year, two years, three years, there are some pretty good opportunities out there, but one has to be able to stomach the volatility, which doesn't look like it's going to go away anytime soon.
0: Stomaching the volatility, that should be my daily job title. Advisors Capital <laughs> Partner Joanne Feeney, thank you. Let's get back to our top tech story. Meta has announced a hiring freeze and warned employees of restructuring the Facebook parents' first ever headcount cut. Let's bring in Bloomberg's Kurt Wagner, who broke that story, but also Bloomberg Intelligence senior analyst Mandeep Singh to discuss. Kurt, I want to start with you. Set the scene for us. What do we learn in the course of our reporting on Thursday?
5: Yeah, so this was during a Q&A that happens weekly between Mark Zuckerberg and all employees at Meta, and he said, uh, you know, hey, I promised you I was going to come back with some, uh, you know, ideas about where the budget's headed for 2023. And the big news is there's going to be a hiring freeze and that it sounds like most teams within Meta are going to see their budgets reduced next year. And so how exactly that's going to play out within each individual team is is going to be different. In some cases, you know, when uh, someone leaves a team, they're just not going to fill that role again. Some people are going to be moving from team to team. And then in some cases, they're going to be kicking out low performers, right, which is a, a pretty drastic thing that we haven't seen at Facebook in a long time or ever. And so this really just feels like um, a moment, right? This company that has been growing. Uh, and expanding for 18 years, finally hitting a bit of an issue here.
0: I want to show you both some of what Mark Zuckerberg told Meta employees on Thursday, uh, these comments obtained by Bloomberg News. There are a number of ways to reduce the size of a group. Some teams will transfer people to other teams that are growing. A lot of teams will choose not to backfill when somebody departs. But ultimately, Kurt, he used the word shrink. Two questions. This is a company that historically has not reduced headcount. But what is the reality of what we're talking? about here
5: yeah we didn't get specific numbers Uh, you may recall last week the wall street journal had a report that that meta might cut costs by 10 percent but that wasn't clear if that was just headcount or other things but Again, as you point out, this is not a company that has normally or historically ever done this kind of thing. So any idea of, of shrinking that headcount from 2022 to 2023 is, is, is a huge deal because uh, I think last quarter they added almost 6,000 employees in
0: the quarter, right? So the idea that they're going in the other direction all of a sudden is, is pretty notable. All right, let me bring in Bloomberg Intelligence senior tech analyst Mandeep Singh. This is a company that faced headwinds on the bottom line, actually the top line as well. What is your reaction? this news?
1: Well
6: the one thing is we know every company in this space is doing that. So you heard that from Alphabet. Snapchat. So it's not a total surprise that they announced the hiring freeze. The problem for Meta is we don't have visibility into when that top-line growth will resume, not only because advertising is going through a cyclical downturn, but also because of the challenges that are Meta-specific, which is the pivot to videos, the Apple's IDFA changes. They have the largest exposure to direct response ads. And look, the Reality Labs losses, they are really hurting because Because Facebook's, uh, Meta's free cash flow went from 30 billion to less than 10 billion this year. That's huge. If you're an investor, you're thinking, when will that 30 billion free cash flow return? And I don't think we have the visibility.
0: So on your screen, I pulled up Meta Reality Labs. Actually, I think I'm right in saying last quarter, sales grew 48%, which is 450 million odd. But the loss was almost 3 billion. This is part of Meta's pivot to the metaverse. Is it just that it's becoming too painful a cost in the near term?
6: Yeah, and as an investor, you have to ask, what are they spending 3 billion a quarter on? Yes, they are taking the losses, but remember, these are recurring, And, you know, is it going on product? Is it going on just adding employees, which it looks like? I mean, they clearly overhired over the last two years. But the recurring losses is what is mind-boggling here and the scale of, you know, the losses. And when you compare it to an Alphabet or a Snapchat, which are also investing in Metaverse or AR, VR, it doesn't show up in their R&D spend. So that's where I think Meta really has to show to investors what is it that they're spending all this money on. Kurt, what do
0: we know about what Zuckerberg had to say for the reasons behind this? Why now? Why are they doing this? Well, he pointed to the macroeconomic
5: environment, right? And this is something that we've seen a lot of these tech companies, but especially advertising-based tech companies, talk about over the last uh, couple months and couple quarters, which is, you know, there's inflation. There's a war going on in Europe uh... you see all of these things kind of colliding and, and oftentimes when there is a recession or any hint of a recession the first budget that tends to go is the marketing budget right and so when you're uh, making money from advertising it can be very cyclical with uh... you know that's why we see a, a spike at the holidays right same kind of thing when there. are are uh, uh, reductions in marketing spend because of other things going on. These companies usually feel at first,
0: and so that's been a lot of the reasoning
5: for uh, why they're cutting back on
0: these costs. Mandy, there's also the other strategy, which is to go after video in a crowded field with TikTok and YouTube, and you and I have been discussing about how the ad side of that business
6: is tough. Explain to me why. Well, not only you have got, you know, TikTok, there's also Netflix, which is trying to get into ads. And we know Amazon has been, uh, you know, doing very well on the search side. So clearly this field is getting crowded and Meta's problem is not only are they losing engagement, remember the time spent on Meta, Instagram, and Facebook properties is declining even though their daily active user growth is holding up, but their time spent is declining. So their impressions growth is going down and ad pricing is going down. So that's a double whammy. And that's why pivoting to videos is just the wrong time because they are behind. TikTok and all these other platforms, and and it's just going to take more time. They don't have the creator base that a TikTok has, so they have to bring the creators. Guess what? There has to be a revenue-sharing model that's going to eat into the gross margin. So a lot of problems in terms of making that pivot now. They should have done that before pivoting to Metaverse. The
0: battle for eyeballs continues. Bloomberg's Kurt Wagner and, of course, Bloomberg Intelligence Senior Tech Analyst Mandeep Singh, thank you to you both. Coming up, an Apple executive is ousted after a viral TikTok. Details next. This is Bloomberg.
7: What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop, customer satisfaction scores would rise and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said. Done.
8: Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork.
0: More bad news for Apple this week. Shares plunged by as much as 6% Thursday, wiping $120 billion from its market value. Now, Bloomberg has learned one of the company's senior executives is leaving after a TikTok emerged of him making an off-color joke. Bloomberg's Mark Gurman is here to explain. Mark, what did you learn in the course of your reporting on Thursday?
10: Today we reported that Tony Blevins, Apple's longtime vice president of procurement, been at the company for about 22 years or so. Uh, he is leaving the company after he appeared in a very viral video uh, that aired earlier this month on Instagram and TikTok. Uh, and In the video, he made some crude comments. This is a TikTok and Instagram account uh, by a creator named Daniel Mack. He goes up to people at car shows in Beverly Hills, elsewhere in the world, goes up to people and asks them if they're driving a fairly expensive car, what they do do for a living, and Blevins' response was clearly not in line with what Apple felt was acceptable, uh, leading to his departure now from the company.
0: As you said, Tony Blevins as a senior executive but essentially head of procurement for Apple. That's a massive role. What projects has he been involved in? What deals has he done for the company?
10: Yeah, absolutely. Blevins has been head of procurement for Apple, and what that means is he does all the supplier agreements and partner agreements for many of Apple's products, particularly the iPhone, the iPad, and some of their other mobile devices. So I'll give you an example of the Global Star deal that Apple did earlier this month or announced earlier this month as part of the new satellite emergency SOS feature for the iPhone 14 and 14 Pro. That was overseen uh, by Blevins. Blevins did the complex negotiations uh, related to Apple sourcing 5G Qualcomm modems for the latest iPhone uh, units. He also did deals with Intel, uh, Samsung Display, uh, Imagination Technologies. Any of the big suppliers that you've heard of, it was his responsibility to get those components ahead of the competition and at better prices than the competition, leading to Apple's strong margins. Some people in the company say he's even irreplaceable, given how important he was to Apple's bottom line and their product roadmap.
0: Mark, what do we know about how Apple dealt with this issue internally and what has Apple's response been to our reporting?
10: So the video was first published on TikTok on September 5th and on Instagram on September 6th. After the video became public, which by the way, it has well over a million views on TikTok and over 40,000 comments on Instagram, so I'd quantify it as fairly viral, Uh, people within the Apple operations and procurement organizations reported the video to Apple's Human Resources Department, which then enacted an investigation uh, into the situation. Uh, We're told that this month, uh, Jeff Williams, Apple's COO, Chief Operating Officer, made the decision that Blevins would be leaving the company. And today I spoke to Blevins. He issued a statement, which is in our story. Uh, It's a form of an apology that you can read in the article itself. And I spoke to Apple as well. And Apple confirmed that Blevins uh, would be leaving the iPhone maker.
0: All right. Those are the latest details on that report. Bloomberg's Mark Gurman. Thank you very much. Amazon is boosting pay for hourly workers in the U.S. The online retailing giant says the move will raise the average starting wage for most frontline employees in warehousing and transportation to $19 an hour. Bloomberg has learned that Amazon will close all but one of its U.S. call centers and shift hundreds of office employees to remote work. That's a move that would help save money on real estate. But there are headwinds for Amazon's M&A ambitions. Senator Elizabeth Warren of Massachusetts says she and other lawmakers have asked the FTC to reject Amazon's proposal to buy iRobot. That according to a report from Axios. Last week, the FTC asked Amazon and iRobot to send additional information about the proposal. On Wednesday, Amazon's Senior Vice President of Devices told me he feels confident the deal will go through. And SoftBank Group has begun laying off employees at its loss-making, Vision Fund. Sources say that SoftBank expects to cut at least 30% of its staff. The London-based Vision Fund unit had about 500 employees. It recently posted a $23 billion loss, with most of that coming from a plunge in valuations of portfolio companies. Now Porsche is confident despite a lackluster IPO in Germany on Thursday. Porsche just eked out again during its trading debut with the IPO valuing the company at around $73 billion. Its CFO told Bloomberg the company can meet its revenue target of as much as $40 billion for this year despite the difficult macroeconomic situation. Here's some of that conversation.
3: Yes successfully mastered one of the biggest largest IPOs in Europe ever and yeah therefore we are very proud and yeah and I would like to say thank you to our entire team yeah. whose work has ensured that we can stand here okay. today.
11: And and I, I cast my mind's eye back to 2018, four years ago. Yeah. And you flagged, you came out and said, maybe we should IPO Porsche with a market cap of around 80 billion euros. There was a bit of pushback internally, externally, when you came out with that. Do you feel vindicated?
3: Yeah, absolutely. It was um, a tough fight over four years now, but we succeeded. Now we can stand here. We are very happy yeah, and we see further potential for the future with our strong brand. How are
11: you going to cooperate between the parent company Volkswagen and Porsche? You have a little bit more independence now, but we know historically there's been tension between the brands and the portfolio. How are you going to cooperate and make sure there are synergies that work for you at Porsche?
3: Yeah, we have negotiated an industrial cooperation contract with VW and it has clearly regulated that Porsche has 100% autonomy in future. The Porsche board will decide in future, completely independent from VW. And yeah, that's a great situation for us. We want to unlock Porsche's full potential, of course, but we have also the possibility in future to work together with the VW group brands where beneficial for Porsche. That's that's the case uh, when it comes to sharing technologies like the Taycan uh, used also for the Audi um, e-tron GT pooling emissions, bundling purchasing volumes, or also using production capacities uh, like the Cayenne
11: in Bratislava. Okay, uh, and talking about production, so you have the factories in Germany, you're producing in Germany, you're producing in Slovakia. Where do you build out the factories of the future for
3: Porsche? Yeah, hopefully in, in Germany and in Slovakia. There's no other plan. That was Porsche CFO
0: Lutz Meschka. And what's interesting, I mean, last year, the Taycan electric Porsche outsold the traditional 911. But what's also interesting out of the news on Thursday, Porsche promising you purists out there that the 911 will remain a gasoline vehicle. The 911 will still be running on gasoline for years to come. Interesting one. What do you make of that? Tweet me. Welcome back to Bloomberg Technology. I'm Ed Ludlow in New York. India plans to boost the financial incentives it offers makers of tablets and laptops to manufacture them in the country. It's part of Narendra Modi administration's effort to woo companies like Dell and Apple and a challenge to China as the main tech production base. The plan is to offer as much as 550 million US dollars per manufacturer according to a document seen by Bloomberg News. Apple recently started making the new iPhone 14 in India earlier than expected following a smooth production rollout. And sticking with Apple, the iPhone makers' shares dropped again Thursday. Apple was hit by a rare downgrade with Bank of America seeing the tech giant's dominance
4: at risk. Here with the details, Bloomberg's Bailey Lipschatz. Bailey. Yeah, Ed, we saw Apple fall almost 5% after that downgrade from Bank of America, wiping out close to $120 billion in market value, really sounding the alarm over concerns surrounding a weaker consumer demand over the next year, as well as concerns really around the fact that the U.S. dollar is trading so strong. Apple is a company that generates more than half of its uh, sales from overseas. That really hitting shares today. But there was a bank that came out kind of disagreeing with that downgrade. That was Rosenblatt at. That company or that firm upgrading shares on Apple or its rating on Apple to buy from neutral, saying that they're seeing strength in demand from uh, iPhone 14 purchases, primarily the iPhone 14 Pro and that Ultra Watch. So really kind of seeing value over the near and immediate medium term. And then looking at it, though, from a broader standpoint over the last week, we've seen Apple shares really falling under market pressure that coming after that Bloomberg report that the company was pulling back on plans to potentially ramp up production of that iPhone 14, but Wall Street really has been disagreeing in the past few days about whether consumers are shifting towards buying iPhone 14 Pros and the Pro Max more high-end models as opposed to that low basic entry level at the iPhone 14. All right. Our thanks to Bloomberg's Bailey Lipschultz. Apple was just one drag on equity
0: markets Thursday as the Nasdaq 100 fell almost three percent. Global investors are bracing for central bank policy tightening and a slowdown across economies around the world. Private market investors are bracing too. For more on the state of tech and venture capital, let's bring in Andrea Lamari, general partner at Manhattan Venture Partners. And Andrea, let's just start with the big picture. What is going through your head right now when you sit at your desk? and you would look at the world what do you see
2: well Ed, i definitely see a change in excitement across the venture market i think generally what us venture capitalists believe is that we're bracing for winter yet again but this time around it's really that the crystal ball going into q1 and q2 of next year is quite unclear for most of us and some of us are just breathing a sigh of relief that many of our companies just have a war chest of cash sitting on their balance sheet for now. So I think we're all just bracing for winter. We aren't exceptionally excited about any of the IPO prospects, so we want to remain bullish. Ultimately, it's an assessment of where will companies go and how will they control spending money going into the rest of the year.
0: I'm taking a look at some of your firm's portfolio companies, interesting names. You know, that's another perspective. When you speak to the founders and executives at these firms, you know, many of them sizable. What is your advice to them in this market?
2: Well, many of the companies in our portfolio are very late stage in preparing for an IPO quite frankly we believe that there's a three-step formula for the companies that are preparing for ipos going into the remainder of the year as well as q1 and q2 and those three things are first and foremost that they have to have a really compelling tailwind story that will project them really high going into being a public company so for example trip actions is going to ride those very deliberate tailwinds and prepare for their confidential filing And I think overall that tells a really compelling story that for number two on the list is show value creation to retail investors that once they buy into an IPO, that there's only upward mobility from there. And then number three is that they actually can control spend and remove the um, obvious nature of being unprofitable and show that path to profitability if not right before the IPO but after. So those are really the three things that we're going into our late stage companies and directing them on.
0: Andrea, you're a venture capitalist and we're always thinking about the Fed, higher rates. How brave a decision is it to sit on the sidelines right now and not deploy capital?
2: I think right now, overall, we all are kind of bracing to say we can wait just a bit longer. I think that there will be a lot of questions coming from the limited partner community that are investing in these venture funds going into Q1 of next year if many of us do not deploy capital for the remainder of this year. But for now, I think we're all just really comfortable sitting tight and saying, hey, We're here to just support our portfolio companies so that they end the year really strong and focus less on where the Fed is going with the higher interest rate hike and say, listen, let's just control where the balance sheet is going, sit tight. Many of them still have hiring freezes that are in place and stop spending money on crazy R&D projects to wrap up the year. Are we
0: talking about this as being sort of a multi-quarter not phenomenon, but process. I mean, do you think that we get to the end of this year, first quarter of next and things change or are you kind of battening down the hatches a bit, bit longer term than that?
2: I would say we're all battening down the hatches a bit longer than that. I don't see much of the dismay going into Q2 of next year, but at least Q1, because I think we're all gonna have a really retrospective look on 2022 once we get into the first quarter. Overall, companies at least will be able to display that they controlled spend. They cut costs where they needed to and showed that the growth can continue. But I don't know if I see that it's going to be any more than, quite frankly, neutral until we go to Q2, where companies say, okay, now that we have a handle on our balance sheet, we could really rev up where we had controlled all of our costs in 2022. So I'm much more bullish about a Q2 uh, trajectory from here.
0: There's a term that we've bandied around a little bit, the IPO winter. Is there an IPO winter, particularly for tech?
2: I absolutely think so. I think we're all really excited, and of course, we obviously have a bit of a bias to say, okay, we might have prospects such as Instacart that will really be a shining star, maybe even a Trojan horse for some other companies that are comparable to go public at that time frame in Q4, but really that IPO winter it's gonna be freezing, it's gonna be chilly, and it's gonna go until the second half of December. If we don't see any IPOs by November, late November, and then the first week of December, I really would say it's it's gonna be quite a cold uh, winter going into Q1.
0: I kind of like your sort of refreshing honesty. You know, if you're being honest with yourself and we think back to say the beginning of 2020, 2018, 2019, were we just really overvaluing growth?
2: We were overvaluing growth at all costs in okay. lieu of profitability. I absolutely think so. I think companies said we want to 100X our growth because that's what startups are fueled to do. However, now we're really seeing what the, uh, the after effects, the aftershocks of that are going to be. And right now, companies are pricing you know well below 10X forward revenues. And I think that that's a healthy place for us to be And I think that that's going to take, you know, another two, three quarters to recover from when it comes to valuation stabilization. And at this point in time, companies are just absolutely terrified of taking a valuation haircut. So they're agreeing to some pretty aggressive investor-friendly terms in new rounds of funding today.
0: All right. Manhattan Venture Partners, General Partner Andrea Lamari. What a pleasure to have you on. Come back. Thank you. All right, coming up, as voters head to the polls in November, how will the results impact blockchain policy? We'll share the results of a survey all about that next. This is Bloomberg.
7: What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop, customer satisfaction scores would rise, and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks, like generating an instant first draft in your company voice or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites, plus it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said. Done.
8: Hi, I'm Ron Kraszewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you.
0: Time for our daily crypto report, Bloomberg Sonali Bassett. Take it from here.
12: Thank you, Ed. We're going to talk today about the intersection of crypto, Web3, and politics because there's a new poll out from Hound Ventures and Morning Consult. And for more on those findings is Hound Ventures Chief Policy Officer, Tamika Tilleman. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm really curious here because you have about 800 people or so that you've surveyed through this with uh, Morning Consult. But was there anything really surprising to you? We know more money has been going into crypto lobbying. We know that this is going to be seen as an issue for lawmakers. But what was different here that you didn't expect to see?
9: Well, there are a couple of real standout issues going into these critical midterm elections. We recognize that the next Congress is very likely to write the rules that will define policy architecture for the next generation of the Internet. Uh, And it's critical for those policymakers to know what Americans are thinking as they embark on that process. The first big takeaway for us is that the Web 3 voter is now a very significant constituency. If you think historically, for example, about the role that organized labor has played, in U.S. elections, and it's been a very consequential role. We now have 50% more voters in these key swing states that hold digital assets than hold an organized labor card, a union card. So this is a very substantial swath of the electorate we're talking about. Uh, The second big takeaway for us is that this is an issue that is pre-partisan or bipartisan. Mm -hmm. There are substantial majorities of voters that say they will vote against. They'll be less likely to vote for candidates who aren't in favor of or supportive of constructive policymaking uh, around the future of Web 3. Now, Tamika,
12: on that note, really quickly, because, you know, you think about this as either a bipartisan issue, but, you know, on, on one hand, voters seem to be more likely to oppose standards who stand in the way of policies, but they are slightly leaning towards Democratic senators. Why is that the case? Traditionally, the Democrats have been tougher on the financial industry and technology. So why, in this instance, are you you expecting that not to be the case
9: Well, as a group, Web3 voters tend to be younger, they tend to be more diverse, and they tend to be solidly middle class. Uh, And at least in a couple of those categories, you do see close alignment, uh, broadly speaking, with the Democratic Party. Again, the fascinating thing to us on the whole is the degree of unanimity uh, that we find across party lines and across ideological lines uh, when it comes to these results. This is one of the last bastions of true bipartisanship in American public policy today. And the other critical thing which I would highlight is over 90% of the voters that we surveyed were in favor of the core principles that underlie Web3. Hmm. So specifically there, we're talking about digital platforms that are community owned, community governed, and give individuals well, a greater say in how their data is used. That's that, a big deal.
12: Yeah, and on that exact note here, are we talking about crypto more large? Are we talking about tokens? Are we talking about Web3? What part of the spectrum here are voters really interested in and seeing more policy being thoughtful towards?
9: Well, over 75 percent of voters feel that big tech has too much power in their lives. They are looking for an alternative to a digital framework that frankly isn't working very well. It's neither desirable nor sustainable. And growing numbers of, uh, of the electorate are, I think, cluing into that fact. What we see is that there is a broad appreciation of the potential that Web3 has to create an internet that gives more opportunity to more individuals and democratizes access to a lot of the financial and digital tools that have historically been the domain of very small numbers of people. And voters are responding to that in a big way.
12: Now, do you think that in any fashion this will be a single issue, uh, voter kind of situation here given so much else is happening, especially in the economy when you see a lot of people really burn from inflation here do you th- and a war going on in Europe? To what extent does this fall into all of the other issues that are happening in America today?
9: Well, we know that for a subset of these voters, these are very strongly held views and they are passionate about the potential of this technology. And they're also passionate, frankly, about the need to build a better Internet, the the need to develop uh, a new digital architecture that is going to meet their needs a lot better than what we have today. Beyond that, this is, I think, the early days of what has the potential to become a very large and very powerful constituency in American politics. Uh, And it is unlike anything we've seen before in that it is simultaneously an industry, but it's also a community. Uh, And that convergence is creating some big opportunities to think differently about how we define policy in this space.
12: You know, this is the midterms right around the corner here, the second part of Biden's term. To what extent do you expect to see a serious movement on a lot of the crypto regulation that has been promised uh, from, from lawmakers now for many, many months?
9: Well, we already today are in a pretty remarkable position when you consider where we were just two years ago. The fact that we have multiple very serious bipartisan pieces of legislation working their way through Congress, a very serious executive order that's forging a whole-of-government approach to digital assets uh, and Web3, all of these are promising signs. We've certainly got a long way to go. And my assumption is that a lot of the legislating, at least, is going to fall on the shoulders of the next Congress. But the fact that there is a real opportunity uh, to create the cornerstones, to establish the cornerstones of what this new digital policy framework will involve uh, is uh, something none of us should take lightly and, frankly, why these elections and the voters uh, that decide them are so important.
12: Michael Micah Hound Ventures Chief Policy Officer, thank you so much on the heels of your new survey out with Morning Consult. Ed, back to you.
0: Shinali. This week, the company Illumina is hosting the Genomics Forum in San Diego. It includes speakers from Barack Obama to Bill Gates. And Thursday, Illumina announced its first new sequencing technology in more than two years. The company says it can read a person's entire genetic code for as little as $200 a pop. Here, for a Bloomberg exclusive on the announcement, is Illumina CEO Francis D'Souza. Francis, talk to me about the technology that's gone into this latest iteration of sequencing tech. What have you actually done? to update it. This is a huge
13: uh, move, move, step forward in our technology platform. We really redid every part of the sequencer. So we've invented an entire new chemistry called SBS. We invented a whole new optic system, including the glass we needed for the lens this didn't exist anywhere in the world, so we had to invent new glass to use in the lens. We've invented a whole new data path with high performance compute on the machine itself. So really this has been just a ground up redo of our sequencer platform so that we could get a major step change in terms of performance and really bring the price of sequencing, of genomic sequencing, you know, down to the market. We're also able to make this more sustainable product and eliminate the need for the cold chain. So before that, you needed dry ice to ship the reagents to run the machine to the labs around the world. And you don't need that anymore. And so this makes a sequencer accessible to countries around the world that don't have access to cold chain. So it's a big step forward
0: in accessibility. Francis, your ultimate goal is a $100 genome. You're at $200. Is this just you playing it safe? You know,
13: our path, our strategy as a company has been to drive the prices down, and we've done that over the course of many years. When we first launched our sequencer in 2007, the price to sequence one genome was $150,000, and that was a, a breakthrough price in the market. We've gone from $150,000 a genome to $200 a genome in that time from 2007 till today. So greater than 99% price reduction, and we're not stopping there. We believe to make genomics
0: accessible to everybody and have the difference in healthcare that it can, we need to keep going. Does this once again make you the market leader, the tech leader? Do you leapfrog back to that position of leadership? You
13: know, we. We really believe that in order to move the market forward, we need to to drive more innovation to make sequencing accessible. At this point, we do believe that our products represent the best sort of uh, value proposition to customers in terms of performance and price. But look, the reality is we're very early in this market. If you think about the market opportunity in front of us, we still have largely untapped the medical need for genomic sequencing. So the vast majority of the market is still in front of us a lot of innovation to do to really open up the markets uh, as we think they need to be.
0: I want to ask you about the reality of this for your customers. We're talking about labs, right? Complicated, sophisticated labs. You're talking $200 genome, but it's an expensive cost for them. What have your pre-orders been like? What is the initial interest from your customer base been? Well, the Early response has been
13: phenomenal. You know, we gave a sneak peek to a few customers before we made before I did the announcement this morning and every single one of them pre-ordered. So we're at this stage now where we're taking orders. We ship the instrument in Q1 of next year, so a few months from now. And, and we're going to be taking orders between now and then. The right. response has been strong on a number of fronts. People really appreciate the price reduction. People love the sustainability features, so reducing the waste and the plastic. And people, we had a couple of customers come to us in tears about the fact that you no longer need a cold chain. So this product
0: is now available in parts of the world that just didn't have access to high throughput sequencing. Francis, your $7 billion deal for Grail was vetoed by the European Union. At this stage of the process, do you give up?
13: You know, the deal for GRAIL is an important one because, as you know, we invented with GRAIL was a blood test that can find 50 types of cancer across stages. That's life-changing because we know that 10 million people a year die of cancer. and, And we also know that if you catch a cancer early, your odds of surviving are so much higher than if you catch it late. Now, 70% of the people who die from cancer die from cancers that are caught at late stages. So by doing the blood test, by rolling out Grail's blood test more broadly, you know we believe that that has the potential to save many lives yes. around the world. And we can roll it out more broadly than Grail could on its own. So it's important. We're gonna continue through the process uh, to see if we can win on appeal with the European Commission.
0: All right, Illumina CEO Francis D'Souza, a pleasure to have you on the program. That does it for this edition of Bloomberg Technology Friday. We'll have Katie Horn of Horn Ventures to talk about her bets for the future of the internet. Don't forget to check out our podcast. You can find it on the terminal, on Apple, Spotify, and of course, iHeart. This is Bloomberg.
1: It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through.